Father, we ask for your life-giving spirit here in, in the sanctuary this morning. I pray that you would give us all a fuller measure of life, a fuller measure of health, a fuller measure of the creative spirit that is in us because of you. I pray that you would empower us to uh, create life where there is death, to create promise where there is hopelessness, to create progress where there is stagnation. I pray that you would make, make us a healthy, supernatural people. When we commit ourselves to you this morning and incline our hearts to hear your voice, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are doing a sermon series on health and fitness, by which we mean mostly internal health and fitness. Um, the thing that ultimately lets you live out the life that God has for you. I'm sure that you are a person of purpose. I am sure that you are a person of destiny. God has a calling on your life to do life-giving, creative, progressive things in this world. You are a person of purpose. Uh, the question is, do you have the strength and the internal power to follow through, to carry out the purpose that God has for you, and that's really what health is. It's your ability to function powerfully uh, in life. Uh, your internal health, your internal fitness is a thing that protects you from getting taken out in life, uh, from being rendered ineffective. And to me, that's like, that's about the greatest tragedy in the world. When a human being, a child of God, is rendered pointless, is rendered ineffective and stagnant. That just screams tragedy to me. And very often the way that we get rendered pointless, ineffective in life is because uh, we have a, an internal health crisis. And something goes on in us that effectively takes us out. Uh, mainly in this sermon series, we're talking about a few different pillars of fitness. We're talking about faith we're talking about purity, and we're talking about humility. And last week we talked about faith. Uh, I was going to talk about purity this week, but I got so many emails, so many phone calls, so many messages about the faith sermon that I thought, ah, I'll talk about faith again this week. We're just going to meditate on it a little bit. And on one hand, faith seems like such an obvious pillar in this life of faith, in this life of following Jesus, uh, that uh, it should be very intuitive and, and obvious to people, but... Um, I don't know, every once in a while it's worth meditating on it uh, with some energy and, um, and some time because the life of faith can be a little bit counterintuitive. Uh, so by popular demand, we're on faith again this week, uh, if you can believe that. <laughs> it's like a pun there. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, one of the insights uh, that we've been working on in this health series is, is that health is, is determined by what we do to feel powerful. I believe that almost all human behavior is motivated by the, the desire to feel powerful. And unhealthy people do things that make them feel powerful in the short term. And healthy people do things that actually make them powerful in, in the long term. And that's, that's basically uh, the difference. Uh, simple example. Uh, is, has to do with what you eat. You know, when you're, when you're hungry or when you need food empowerment, do you eat comfort food 
that makes you feel powerful in the short term but doesn't make you healthy in the long term? You know what I'm talking about. Or do you eat nutritious food that actually strengthens you and makes you powerful for the long term? And the choices that we make in life are, are like that. Do you do things that actually make you powerful or do you do things that only make you feel powerful and comforted in the short term? That, more than anything else, determines your health in life uh, in a nutshell. Uh, and uh, faith is, is one of those things. Do you do things that make, do you do uh, faith-filled things that make you feel powerful in the short term? Or do you do actual faith that makes you powerful in the long term? That's kind of what we're talking about today. Let's begin by talking about physics, because I am a geek. Physics. Come, come on, Seth. Physics. That's the thing about geeks. They're not very, not very vocal. Uh, in the world of physics, uh, anybody will tell you, there's a big difference between how the world appears on one level and how it actually operates on another level. Uh, those of you who are physics geeks understand the difference between the world of classical physics and the world of quantum physics or quantum mechanics, uh, which is apparently how the, yes, I'm, I'm getting some amens. Don't worry, this has a point. I'll go somewhere with this uh, eventually. Um, the, the thing about uh, the world of quantum physics, how things work on a very micro level, is that tiny, tiny particles don't follow the rules like we think they should. Uh, for instance, if the particle is small enough, science now tells us that it can, uh, it can reside in two places at once. More places than that, actually. And uh, recently, when was it, like two, two, 2014, and the Nobel Prize go to the measurement of, uh, of an electron in two places at once. We proved that tiny particles can inhabit more than one location at a time, which violates the rules, right? In fact, science tells us that tiny particles exist in all places at once until you look at them, until you measure them. And then and only then do they exist in only one place. Are you following me? Because if you're following me, you're probably not following me. Because the world is really weird. At a micro level, things are very, very weird. And physicists struggle with how to even describe this, how to talk about it. You know, you hear about the multiverse. You hear about multiple universes. You, you hear about uncertainty principles and, and things like that. But at a, at a tiny, tiny level, at the smallest level of all, things aren't defined until they are measured. Everything exists in infinite possibility until we look at it. Until we interact with it, nothing is, is set. It's, uh, physicists talk a lot about observation. Where is the particle in space right now? Well, it's everywhere until we, until we observe it. There's a power in looking at things. Observation. Uh, there's this uh, principle called entanglement. You know about this? One person has to know what entanglement is. It's going to be either Seth or Keith. Entanglement? Oh my gosh. They said, Jordan, you can't use a physics illustration at Blue Water Mission. I said, oh sure I can. These are people with imaginative brains. Thank you. Tell us more. 
what happens in physics? There's this principle called entanglement. You take two small, two small particles and you, you entangle them. You, you, ex they, you make them interact with each other. Uh, and physics tells us that when they interact with each other, they will, they will begin responding to each other. There, there's this uh, uh, physical principle called spin, for instance. When two particles interact with each other, two, uh, two tiny, tiny particles, one of them will spin one direction and the other another direction. Uh, it's like poles on a magnet, uh, if you will. But the thing is, until we look at them, we don't know what direction they're spinning. Until you look at them, they're spinning in all directions at once. Right, so what you do is you take these two entangled particles and you split them. You put one in a box over here, and then you put one in a box and you take it 100 miles away. It might only be a kilometer or two for the, in these experiments, but you can take them 100 miles away. And this one over here is existing in all places at once, and then you look at it. And then suddenly it stops and it exists in, it has one certain spin on it. It exists in, in a certain state. Simultaneously, 100 miles away, the other particle will, um, will assume the complementary state. How does that particle know what's happening over here? Nobody knows. And physicists say, well, when you entangle particles, they come to love each other. And even if you move them 100 miles apart, whatever happens to this particle happens to this particle 100 miles away. Are you following me? This actually happens in the world. That's how, that's how physics works. That's how particles behave in the world. Uh, Einstein was so offended by this observation, uh, by this reality, that he called it spooky science. Spooky science that operates at a resistance. He said, I, I see that it's true, but I reject it in my soul. <laughs> the universe can't really work that way, but it does. Distance does not matter for tiny particles. All right, the reason I talk about those weird things is because I, I, just, I just wanted to assure you that the universe is mystical. We have no idea how things work at a very small level. We observe these weird things, particles interacting with each other over hundreds of miles instantaneously, violating laws of space and time as we understand them. We don't know. Uh, you hear scientists uh, talk these days about science, uh, um, the theory of everything. Have you heard of that? Like, we are really close to understanding the universe entirely. No, we're not. In the, in the early 1900s, science, scientists used to talk about, well, we're almost, we have almost discovered everything. There may not be any big discoveries left. They actually talked about that. What we have discovered now is that there's more that we don't know than we've ever known before. <laughs> the universe is crazy. And how we interact with the universe, how we observe it, how we approach it, actually affects how things operate at a micro level. Observation is, is important. All that is a setup uh, to talking about faith, uh, believe it or not, because I think faith is a force in the universe. And I think even if you're very scientifically minded, you'd have to admit that that's quite possible, that what we expect to happen, how we interact with the universe, actually determines the shape of the world around us. Faith is like this mystical entanglement in the universe that determines things. It's this way of interacting with the world 
that is really quite definitive. It, it really causes things to happen around you. Faith is a force. And, and it's healthy to understand it like that and to learn how to wield the force of faith in the world so that you can shape it in a way that is really healthy and helpful. Faith is a force. It acts on the universe in a way that you probably want to harness. There's a story about it in your bulletins. Probably a familiar story to a lot of you. One of my favorites from Mark chapter 5. Just a short one. It's a story uh, about uh, Jesus resurrecting a dead girl. Uh, Jesus has had a busy day. Uh, he's been in a crowd. He accidentally healed a woman, uh, but got delayed in doing it. Uh, he was on his way to heal this sick girl. But, picking up the story, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, Jairus uh, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why, why bother Jesus anymore? Uh, Jairus had come to fetch Jesus to come heal his sick little girl, but they were delayed and the girl died. And so the messengers come and say, hey, it's too late. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. If there were a thesis statement for the book of Mark, maybe a thesis statement for all of the Gospels, I think this might be it. Don't be afraid. Just believe. No fear. Just faith. That's how things get done in the world. Moving on. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So Jesus uh, goes uh, to see this dead girl, but he only takes... Uh, his three uh, most intimate friends, the chief apostles. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly, funeral mourners. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. A challenging thing to say. That's an interesting way to see the situation, isn't it? But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, <laughs> he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went in to where the child was. I, I, like, I like the way that story progresses. So he goes in, the girl is dead, and he says, no, 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 she's just sleeping. You need to adjust your perspective on this situation, guys. And the mourners laugh at him, they mock him, so he kicks their butts out, which is good ministry. Um, so, oh, oh, you don't, you don't believe? Get out of here. Uh, see. And then he takes uh, just the chief disciples and mom and dad, and they go into the room where the, where the child is, and he took her by the hand and said to her, uh, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. In other words, not that little, but girl who can walk, and at this they were completely astonished. Well, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? And it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful story. Uh, it's a famous story, and reading the story, the thing that we tend to focus on is a dead girl came back to life. 
Uh, but I've been following after Jesus long enough and trying to minister with him long enough that when I read the story, I look at the mechanics of it. I don't look just at what Jesus did. I look at how Jesus went about doing things. And here in this story, it's just so clear that Jesus, he didn't petition God to heal the girl. He didn't petition Father God. He didn't get on his knees and say, oh, please send us a miracle. What did he do to get the job done? What he did to get the job done was he managed faith really proactively in the situation. He wielded faith like a force. And in doing that, he, he did what is typically impossible. But for him, it wasn't impossible. For him, it was just kind of the way the universe works, right? He, he's like he saw it at a different level where the normal rules don't apply. The girl is dead, but he looks at the universe at a different level and says, no, 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 she's just sleeping. And people were like, that's not how the world works. And Jesus said, well, I have different eyes. I, I have looked more deeply. And we're going to access the deeper level of the universe. And the way that we're going to do it is by the force of faith. We're going to understand how faith works. So when he's in the crowd and they get the bad news that the girl has died, the first thing he does is that he turns to the little girl's father and he says, don't be afraid. Do not do that. Don't go there. I need you to believe. Just believe. We got this. We got this. Even if you don't understand, give me some force to, to use. Give me some faith, okay? Give me some faith and let's go. And for whatever reason, the girl's dad said, all right. Sure. Maybe, maybe you know something I don't, uh, so I'm going to go along. And then it only takes the chief guys, the guys who have been with him and seen the most miracles, and I imagine that was about making sure that the people with him had the, the best faith force, if you will. And then he, he gets into the house, and there are funeral uh, mourners there. The way it worked in those days, when somebody died, there were like professional mourners that would show up at your house. You would tip them and they would wail outside, and that was kind of a signal to the village that there had been a death. It was a way of honoring the deceased and stuff like that. Jesus shows up, and he said, okay, I, 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 I can't deal with that. That's not really helpful uh, in terms of faith. So uh, let, me, let me adjust your perspective. I want you to see past the, the classical level of things, and I want you to look more deeply to the way things actually can work. You need to stop it. She's just sleeping. I need you to see it like that. He's just sleeping. And, and they laugh at him. They mock him, which wasn't what he was looking for. It's like, wow, that is a, is a powerful barrier, so get the heck out. He just kicks them out, which is wonderful. That's the best thing to do uh, with uh, mockery and cynicism and stuff like that. He kicks them out and clarifies his faith environment a little bit. You know, he's, he's managing faith. Do you see it? Do you see what he's doing? Right? He... It's not like Jesus can resurrect people just because he's Jesus, just because he's special. Jesus resurrects people because he wields the force of faith in a, in a clever way. He's working the problem like a carpenter, putting stuff together. He wants to put together a, a miracle, and he's going to use faith to do it. He's interacting with the universe in a way that is unique. That's what's going on. And then, of course, he wakes up the girl and everybody's astonished. I remember thinking through this story like that for the first time. And you're like, what, what does Jesus understand that I don't here? You know? 
And we get lots of stories like that in Scripture. We went over some of them last week, about nine times through the Gospels, uh, when Jesus uh, performs a healing miracle, he says to the person who has received the miracle, your faith has made you well, or something quite close to that. It's like the reason that we pulled that off, the reason you got healed, is because there was so much faith force at work that we could shape things in a super powerful way. Nice job. Way to go. Way to, way to move in faith. When Jesus went to his hometown, Mark chapter 6 is a good version of this story. It says he could do no miracles there. And he was astonished at their lack of faith. Because his, home, his homies, his hometowners, they refused to believe that he could operate so miraculously. They'd, they'd grown up with the guy. They said, no, 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 you're not so special. You're one of us. They, you know, the tendency to drag down the people that you're most familiar with. And Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, couldn't do any miracles there. He was incapacitated because he just couldn't get them to a faith place. Faith is a force that you wield in life. That's how God has designed the universe. And if you learn to wield it really well, it turns out that you can do amazing things, sometimes even miraculous things. Don't be afraid, just believe, uh, Jesus said uh, at the outset of, of this story. A lot of times, life boils down to that. Are you going to invest in fear, or are you going to invest in faith? Every challenging moment of life, I think, boils down to that. Are you going to invest in fear, or are you going to invest in faith? And what the Gospels teach us really is yeah, the world is dangerous. And if you invest in fear, it gets worse. <laughs> you invest in faith, you can start shaping the world in a powerful, healthy, blessed way. Faith is a force, and you want to get good at moving in it because the world needs it. There's a difference, right, between petitioning God to do good things for you and moving in faith so that you can do the good things that God designed you to do. Following? Nothing wrong with petitioning God to help you out, but the Lord has designed the universe in such a way and designed you in such a way that the way in which you interact with life determines what can happen in life. And he wants you to move in faith, trust, power. The Bible says nothing but that. And the Gospels say it all over the place. Uh, there are different ways to describe this, but here's a statement I'll make. In a way, it's kind of provocative, but just to drive the point home. The world responds to faith. The universe responds to faith. It responds to faith at a very deep level, in a way that is often counterintuitive and that we don't immediately see. But the world responds to faith. That's the way God designed the universe. What you believe, to a large degree, determines what is possible for you. And if you believe enough, it turns out you can actually raise the dead. Jesus wasn't the only one that did this. Peter, who followed him that day, uh, raised the dead later in his life. 
as did the Apostle Paul, as did the prophet uh, uh, Elisha, you know, it, amazing things can happen. The world responds to faith. God responds to you when you have faith in God. He responds to you really powerfully. People respond to you in a constructive way when you have faith in them. It's one of those canonical rules of human nature. Um, I'm a bit of a dog whisperer. I've rehabbed a lot of, of uh, injured and messed up dogs. I can tell you animals respond to you when you move in faith. When you are afraid around a vicious dog, what happens? They bite you. <laughs> when you have a lot of faith and assurance and authority around a vicious dog, what happens? They listen to you. It's not ironclad. I have some scars. But, <laughs> but I think that often has to do with you know, my imperfection. Um, as, as, a, as a rule of nature, animals respond to faith, more or less, you know. Uh, we heard last week in a story, storms respond to faith. You know, assuming storms are out of order and, and giving you grief, grief, Jesus stands up in the boat and he says to the storm on the sea, Shh, shut up! And what happens? The storm shuts up. And then he turns to his disciples and he said, why were you afraid? And they could have responded, because the storm was about to kill us. But I think Jesus' point was, yes, that storm was deadly, so you should have moved in faith so you could master it. You know, faith is a force that we wield. It's something that actually makes us powerful. You know. Um, faith is not all powerful. Like, you don't get everything that you believe in because, you know, it's not not magic, but it makes you powerful. It makes it far more likely that you can get uh, what you're after. I think sometimes that works even if you're after ungodly things. I think people are after, I don't know, ungodly amounts of wealth or something like that. But if they really, really believe and are confident in the pursuit of it, they are far more likely to get it. I think that's true. It will disappoint them when they get it because it's not a healthy thing. But faith is powerful. The world responds to faith. Now, of course, we want a godly faith to produce godly things. But faith is, faith is powerful, like any other strength is. Not all powerful, but very powerful. And whatever you invest faith in becomes a powerful thing for you. So invest it in good things. That's the end of part one. Are you following me? Everybody kind of get that? Faith is a force that you wield. God has designed life and the universe that way because he wants you to get strong in faith. He wants you to get strong in trust uh, because that's what really cements your relationship with God. All right, uh, part two. Uh, I want to be uh, clear about this today. Fear is a sort of faith. There are different ways to describe this. You can say fear is the opposite of faith, but fear is kind of an anti-faith. Fear Fear is belief in bad things. Uh, fear is belief in bad outcomes. That's what fear is. Fear is belief in bad outcomes. But it is, it is a, a sort of belief. And as such, fear is an incredibly powerful thing. It can make you unhealthy really fast. And to the degree that you move in fear in your life, you will be debilitated. Because it's a sort of faith, and faith is always powerful. That's the way the universe is designed to work. 
if you have, if you are a person of strong faith, maybe you have a supernatural gift of faith, or maybe you just have a great power of conviction, you are a person of great heart and great discipline, you know, if you are strong in faith, then your fear will also be very strong. It's the flip side of that gifting. Do you follow me? So if, if I'm strong in faith, and I move in faith, and I move in trust in God, then I can produce very powerful, godly things in the world. But if I'm strong in faith, and I commit that faith to belief in bad outcomes, I commit that faith to fear, then my fear becomes very productive. My fear creates sickness in my life. My fear creates sickness in the people around me because it's so powerful. You understand that? Have you ever known anyone who was so powerful in fear that they just poisoned the atmosphere around them? Um, uh, setting aside our current political environment, um, fear is uh, one of the great political currencies. Why? Because you can get people to believe in fear. And if you get people to believe in fear, you can manipulate entire nations, can't you? You can, you can cause world wars. You can get people to commit genocide for no other reason than they've committed faith to the fear that you're peddling. This is, this is proven uh, in world history, and it's why politicians use fear so much, because faith is powerful and, and fear is a sort of faith. But I'm talking about just in, in normal life. Have you ever met anyone that dominates in fear? That dom whose anxiety is so powerful that just being around them, you get caught up in it? That it just sucks you right along? Because that sort of fear is powerful and people use it to lead, people use it to dominate, people use it to self-comfort and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's, it's a powerful thing. If you have strong faith, you'll have strong fear. And when, uh, when the enemy encounters people who have strong faith in God, they try to corrupt that faith with fear, and then they become powerful agents for darkness, powerful agents for sickness. Right? You following me? Fear faith can be as powerful as godly faith. So we have to be careful uh, about that. Jesus had to remove everybody's fear in order to heal the girl. And if he couldn't remove people's fear, he kicked them out of the room, didn't he? He kicked them out of the environment and uh, sort of empowered faith uh, in that fashion. Same thing in his hometown. None of this has directly to do with the will of God. The reason Jesus couldn't do miracles in his hometown is not because... Father God didn't want him to. The reason he couldn't do miracles in his hometown is because the people around him moved in cynicism, moved in fear faith, and it stifled good things. Faith is a force. All right, so, so let's just sort of wrap up here. We're talking about three, uh, three things that twist faith, that turn faith into a force for... Um, sickness and destruction instead of using faith as a force for life and creativity and, and godliness. You know, and the first thing would be fear generally, uh, which we've already talked about. Um, 
Fear is a sort of faith, and when you move powerfully in fear, you cause powerful destruction and powerful sickness uh, in, in the world. Why uh, would people believe in fear? Why would they commit themselves to fear? Because they believe that fear makes them safe. If, if you're afraid of things, you won't get taken unawares, will you? You won't find yourself in dangerous uh, situations. So believing in fear is an unhealthy way to achieve safety for most people. People are afraid because they want to be safe, and they think that believing in fear will keep them safe, emotionally, materially, physically. This is why we love fear so much uh, in the world. You attract what you believe in, 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 a, in a certain way. You tend to produce what you believe in. You produce what you put faith in. Uh, so if you really move in fear, you tend to produce the things that you're afraid of. In, uh, I, I uh, used to be an academic. Uh, I studied uh, international relations, particularly international military strategies and, and warfare and, and uh, stuff like that. And uh, political scientists who study these things talk about what they call the security dilemma. Uh, I studied uh, nuclear weapons and WMD and arms races and stuff like that. The security dilemma is when country A is afraid and builds up its military in order to be secure, country B sees that military buildup and thinks, well, now I'm afraid because they're getting strong and they might use those arms against me. So I'm going to build up my military in order to make me safe. But what does that do? That makes country A even more afraid, so they buy more weapons. And the dilemma is that in the pursuit of security, you end up creating a fearful world in which war is more likely. The things that we do to make ourselves safe oftenly, often come back to bite us uh, in the end. And that's sort of the science of 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 arms races. Uh, one of the relational patterns where you see this is what I call rejection complexes. If you are so afraid that people reject, will reject you, then you tend to make people reject you. You know? It's because you get involved in a, in a relationship or a friendship, and you're so afraid that you're going to be rejected that you're suspicious of the other person. And any little thing that they do that can be construed as rejectionary towards you you make a big deal about that, right? Like, what? Why can't, why can't you spend time with me tonight? Have you found somebody else? Uh, no, I just have a lot of work to do. It's like, so I'm not valuable to you? Uh, no, I just have a, a lot of work to do. Uh, I tell you what, you call me when you're ready. Uh, you know what? No, no, I think I'm just going to find an easier friend. Uh, anybody? Strikes close to home? Anybody? all the time, right? Uh, and so you end up producing the very thing that, that you're afraid of. Uh, one, uh, one couple uh, uh, in, in my life uh, who uh, are really committed to financial security, or ha had been uh, throughout you know, decades of, of their life, and uh, it really sort of drove their life. What we're going to do is we're going to get ourselves, you know, we're going to be financially strong so, you know, eventually we don't have to worry about anything. But in becoming financially strong, they lived a really miserly life, you know. 
They lived like poor people, so eventually they could live like rich people. And by the end of, of their lives, um, they, they just died with a lot of money in the bank. Um, their pursuit of financial security led them to live like paupers, even though at the end they had over a million dollars in assets. You know, some of you might know situations like that as well. People get money sick uh, and they do weird things. The thing that they feared, even though by rights they should have overcome it, <laughs> produced a pattern in their life that made them very sick. Fear is a powerful thing. Um, more generally, fear can just suck away your confidence. It, it sucks away your faith in good things, because you can't afford to believe in good things, because then you might get taken unawares, you know? You can't afford to believe that your enemy isn't going to attack you because it might make you vulnerable, so you just double down on believing in fear instead. All of your confidence goes away, all your ability to love, all your ability to move in peace, uh, your ability to perform at a high level or to perform at a miraculous level goes away to the degree that you believe in fear. Believing in fear is an unhealthy way to achieve safety. The question is, what fear do you believe in in life? What fear do you trust to keep you safe? That's what's making you unhealthy. It's sucking the good power out of you and empowering all the crap. Fear does that. Fatalism uh, is kind of a, a fear-born illness, uh, but a lot of us commit to fatalism. Entire cultures commit to fatalism. Fatalism is the belief, and it is a belief, that you have no control or no ability to change things in your life or in the world around you. You just take it as it comes. You're just accepting of whatever happens. You go with the flow uh, in a way that becomes kind of a, a, a trap. Uh, a lot of uh, Christians become fatalistic, I think. Like, you know, they believe in God, they believe in a good God, but there are things in their life that they just don't believe they can change. A good example of that comes from John chapter 5. It's a story of a paralytic uh, who is sitting by a pool waiting to be healed. Um, in, in Jerusalem, there was a pool that was reputed to have healing properties, healing waters, and the legend was that an angel would come and stir the pool with his hand, and when you saw that, you jumped in the water and you would be cured of whatever ailed you. So it was kind of a, a popular legend. And so people who were very sick or paralyzed would gather around the pool and wait till they saw it stirred up. I, I don't know if people actually got healed this way, but that's what they believed in uh, anyway. And a lot of people did it, so I mean, who knows? Who knows what was going on? Uh, but Jesus shows up one day at this pool. He goes to where the sick people are. Vintage Jesus, he kind of did that. Uh, and one who was there had been invalid for 38 years. So 38 years this dude had been waiting for a miracle from God. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, so do you want to get well? Which is an incredibly rude thing to ask the man, right? Somebody who had been suffering with a paralysis, a crippling paralysis for dang near 40 years. And Jesus shows up at the scene and sees the guy lying there on, on the patio suffering and said, do you, do you want to get well? 
well, what, what would you do if you were that guy? Um, but this, uh, this fellow uh, responds uh, a wee bit respectfully. Uh, he says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And I think Jesus has, the reason he says, do you want to get well? It's because Jesus has tapped into this guy's psyche uh, in an interesting way. This guy believed enough to hang out at the pool, but he had worked out a sort of fatalism. It's like, well, I will be here in a place of healing, but there's no way I'll actually get healed. And I think a lot of us approach church that way. I will go to church because that's a place where miracles happen, but I will go to church with a fatalistic attitude, which is a little bit self-protective, right? It's like, I, I believe, but I don't really have to risk anything on belief. I believe, but I'm not going to hope so much that I could be disappointed. Right? And we fall into that fatalism. Uh, believing in fatalism is an unhealthy way to achieve peace. Believing in fatalism is an unhealthy way to achieve peace. That's what this guy was doing. He was achieving peace uh, rather than struggling. Uh, well, Jesus said to him, Get up! Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. It was, it, the story is almost hilarious, the way that it turns out. You find this really depressed guy. Right? Well, uh, do, do you, you want to get well? What's the answer? Yes. But he says, well, I can't because dot, dot, dot. And Jesus just cuts through all of that fatalism and says, oh, yeah. Get up! And the man's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey. And he's like, pick up your mat and take care of yourself. And I was like, yes, sir. And, and suddenly, this guy who was a fatalist is now empowered to live life. You know? You ever wonder why Jesus said, and pick up the bed? You know, be well and make your bed, young man. What's going on there? Well, a lot is going on there. A lot of it. It's like, you are not that disempowered. You're not that sick. You know? Take care of yourself a little bit. Believe that you can, and you can. This isn't just the power of positive thinking. This is a release of God's call on that man's life. You know, the man was not called to be a fatalist, and neither are you. You are not called to believe that there are things in your life that just won't change. You are not called to suffer with things just because. That's how it's always been. Nowhere does the Bible say that. You are called to breakthrough. You are called to overcoming. And sometimes you make these deals with fear that give you a certain sort of peace, but it's a peace that makes you sick, right? It's a peace that makes you unhealthy. It's a peace that compromises your ability to fulfill your calling, to be overcomers. There are challenges in your life. There is great suffering in your life. There are tremendous disappointments in your life, but your call is to overcome those. You're not called to a perfect life by any means. That's not how this world works. But you are called to a life of overcoming. And that requires faith and not fatalism. And wherever you compromise with fatalism, you become sick. You following? I'm preaching to myself on that one because I do it too. I do it too. Naturally depressive, and that's a deal that we depressives often make. You know, I'm going to settle into this, this place where there's not much hope, because there's a, there's a certain peace there. There's a certain comfort there, uh, which I like. Failure is another big thing. Uh, does the same sort of thing. It, it, failure uh, triggers fear, and it triggers fatalism. 
Uh, failure is powerful for us because we really believe in failure. And we really believe in failure. We believe that failure is incredibly important. We believe that failure is definitive. It's a sort of faith that we have. You know, we worship at the idol of failure so that when we experience failure, we're like, oh, you are mighty. You are mighty. You have defined my life. Oh, God of failure. That, that's really what I mean by, by faith in failure. You know, we do that so that when we fail, we give that sucker all the power it wants in our life. And, of course, that becomes incredibly sickening. Uh, belief that failure is, is, is really meaningful. Um, when you give yourself over to a belief in failure, uh, it justifies disobedience. And that's why it's a shortcut to short-term empowerment. I can't do the right thing, therefore I get to do the wrong thing. And doing the wrong thing can be comforting in the short term, you know. And you do that all the time. This is, a, this is an addict's mentality. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we can't do without this drug, so we have to give ourselves to this drug. Uh, we get to do whatever we need to do in order to have this drug in our life. And it might be a chemical drug, or it might be a relational drug, or it might be a money drug. There are all sorts of drugs in life, right? Uh, it's like, well, you know, we can't do the thing that we probably should do, so we get to do this thing, and that justifies our behavior. We, we can self-justify all sorts of things, and, and failure and hopelessness is one big way that we do it. A good way to respond to failure is more like we see in, in Luke chapter 5. Uh, Jesus uh, has shown up on the beach, and he sees the guys fishing out there, you know, Simon, Peter, and, and the guys. And uh, Jesus goes out to them and says, hey, put out into deep water and throw your nets over on this side of the boat. Uh, deep water was not, is not where fishermen fish. Fishermen fish right where deep water becomes shallow water, right there at the, at the drop-off, because that's where the fish school. And if you're fishing with a net, you need to be where the fish school. You need to be where they gather. Um, but Jesus said, no, no, go out in deep water and throw the net over here and, uh, and see if that works. And uh, Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. Failure, failure, failure. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Just enough faith to be obedient. And of course, you know the rest of the story. They throw in the nets in the wrong place. They get such a tremendous haul of fish that the nets start to break. They have to call their friends and other boats to come over. They land this great uh, catch of fish. No one has ever seen anything like that. Peter, Simon Peter gets out of the boat, falls down before Jesus, and says, I repent. I am uh, I'm a sinful man. Lord, um, I, uh, I'd, I'd given myself over to failure. I'd given myself over to fatalism. I, I almost didn't obey. I almost justified disobedience there. I understand something now. That's what's great about Simon Peter. Um, the dude made a lot of mistakes, but he was a great repenter. Uh, he had great bounce uh, in, his, in his life. Belief in failure justifies disobedience. If you have some habitual disobedience in your life, and you're, if you're involved with something that you know you should not be involved in, it's probably because in some fashion in your mind you've decided to believe that you can't do the right thing. 
You believe that you can't do the right thing, and that's how you justify continually doing the wrong thing. You believe in failure. You worship it like a god. <clears throat> um, a lot of times we Christians worry about how to get God to respond. You know, oh God, I, I need your help in life. So, come on. Uh, do, do, do what I need you to do. How do you get God to respond when you really need him? Uh, we often think we get, can get God to respond by freaking out. This is really important. This is a crisis. If you are God, you need to be involved in this. And that's a sort of manipulation that's born of, well, fear, right? A freak out is fear. I believe in fear. I'm really afraid right now. Where's my dad? Uh, that might work when you're really small, but, you know, when you're really old, your dad doesn't respond to freakouts so well anymore, right? It's like, look, you know how the universe works now. What do you do? How does this work? What do you need to do to get my power to flow in you? Probably not freaking out. Probably not freaking out. Sometimes we try to get God to respond by complaining. It's like, well, if you love me, like you should, you'd probably do this thing. Have you ever tried to correct someone in your life by complaining at them a lot? Some situations we call it nagging. Does that work? Ever? Do you think it works with God, who honors faith and designed the universe to be faith-driven above all things? No. Sometimes uh, we uh, try to get God to do something uh, through anger. God, if you don't do this, I'm going to be really pissed. Uh, sometimes we try to get God to respond to us by doing what's right. I have done everything right. I have dotted my I's. I have crossed my T's. I have obeyed the law. Therefore, you must bless me. Good luck with that. Sometimes we try to get God to respond to us in the way we want by working hard, like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. You know, when the father honors the prodigal son who returns, the son who has lived his life in sin and squandered wealth and stuff like that, the elder brother gets offended, and he says to the father, yo, I was here the whole time slaving away for you. How come I don't get a barbecue? You know? And I think what's going on there is this, that's, that's a guy who believes the way to get the father to respond is to impress the heck out of him. It's to work really hard. And the father turns to that guy and says, hey, you know, we've been together the whole time. You could have had a barbecue anytime you wanted. You know? But you need an attitude adjustment. Uh, sometimes we try to get God to do what we want by tempting him with radicalism, by doing such tremendous deeds of ministry that he has to come through for us. You know, all of these things that we try, but really only one thing works. God responds to faith. That's the way he designed the universe. When you move in faith and not fear, you pave the way for great things to happen. I don't want to be overly simplistic about it, but God honors the prayer of faith, Scripture tells us, because he wants us to trust him. And any way in which we manifest distrust or alarm or fear just gets in the way. It doesn't mean that God won't overcome it and do nice things for you, but you're throwing up hurdles where you don't want to throw them up. Faith makes the world go round. Faith shapes uh, the universe. So, be careful what you believe in is, is the point for the day. If you're thinking about 
wanting to be a healthy person, wanting to be an internally fit person, you've got to be careful what you believe in. If you believe you can't change, it's going to be very hard for you to change. If you believe God is against you, it's going to seem like God's against you, and you're going to make it very hard for him to help you out. Uh, if you believe people will reject you, you're paving the way for people to reject you. You are empowering that with faith. Uh, and the father of lies feeds us many things to believe in, and none of them are good. Somebody made a comment earlier, you know, there is a national atmosphere of fear right now. From both directions, people. What, what I don't see in our national atmosphere right now is faith happening. Oh, this is going to be great, because God can do something amazing with this. Here's the voice of faith. Here's what's going to release constructive progress. I don't see any of that. It better come from the church. Uh, I'm thinking the father of lies feeds you lies about your failures and your shortcomings and what's possible for you. He tempts you to believe in the wrong things, so be careful what you believe in. Faith itself is no guarantee of outcomes but it is an empower of outcomes. You can't get what you want just by believing in it really, really hard. That's too simplistic. But perfect faith that's accompanied with obedience and wisdom and love tends to produce what it's designed to produce. Kingdom outcomes. Healing, health, calling and purpose uh, in your life. So we'll just end with a repentance opportunity today. Uh, for the sake of health. You know, this is a, a sermon series on health. What false faith have you believed in? If any. If any. What false faith have you believed in? What fear have you believed in? What failure have you believed in more than you should? Where have you become fatalistic? Where have you believed that there's nothing that you can do? If you're locked in a pattern of disobedience and sin, and sin, take a moment and ask yourself, what did I believe in that has made this destruction possible in my life? And Holy Spirit, I pray that you just kind of point to the lie that we've been fed in that place. What you believe in becomes powerful for you. If it's a bad thing that you believe in, that can be powerful just as well. I do not like uh, cults of faith where everybody just kind of hangs, out, hangs around and tries to psych themselves into believing certain things so that they get those things. That's just really stupid. I don't, you know, ultimately I don't have faith in faith. I have faith in God. Uh, who has designed the universe in a way that honors faith. You know, God is always in the equation. And that means that you don't have to be perfect in faith to get good things. There's this thing called grace. One of my favorite prayers of the gospel is, comes from the father in Mark 9 who has brought his sick little boy to Jesus. And Jesus says to the man, anything is possible for him who believes. Another instance in which Jesus tries to get people to wield the force of faith. And the father responds to Jesus in, in one of the all-time great prayers. He says, I believe! Help me to overcome my unbelief. <laughs> and that's a prayer I say almost every day. I, I believe. I believe in the right things. Can you please help me believe in the right things? Because this is a little bit hard for me, but I believe. And that's just being human. 
That's just being human. So uh, if you need uh, help with that sort of prayer today, let's just end. You stand where you are, and I want to pray over you. We want to pray that prayer corporately, because I believe not in cults of faith, but I believe very much in cultures of faith. That we help each other out by devoting ourselves to the way of faith. By understanding that faith is a force that releases, you know, the blessings of the Father God whom we serve and follow. I mean, everybody had to stand up, but thank you. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe in this. Help me overcome my false belief in this. Go ahead. Pray that. Be specific to God. I believe in this about you, God. I believe that you're good. I believe that there's a calling on my life. I believe that you have called me to be an overcomer. I believe that you've called me to be a difference maker. I believe that you've called me to become an agent of health. Help me to overcome my false faith in fatalism, my false faith in hurt and rejection, my false faith in fear. Make me healthy so that I can move in the world as the, as the world's meant to be moved in. Father God, I pray that you perfect your agenda for every one of us this, this morning. I pray that you would empower us to move in faith as we are designed to move. I pray that you would make us powerful in the force of faith. We become more masterful in the way that we engage the difficulties of life with an attitude of faith. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen.